Well, good evening, everyone. Um, we're very pleased tonight to have Kathleen Stock from the University of Suffolk, Sussex. Uh, Kathleen is very well known for her views and her writings on aesthetics, on imagination, and on issues around gender. And we'll hear some of that this evening. Kathleen. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. So, so what, what I'm going to do is defend a particular account of sexual orientation. Um, and I've written it all out there. I know it's a very off-puttingly dense bit of text, but I'm just going to read it out to start with. Um, and I'm going to call this the orthodox account, because I think it is something that lots of people believe and certainly have believed historically and taken it to be fairly unexceptional. A sexual orientation is a feature of a person differentiated from sexual predilections or preferences. Its possession causes a person to sexually desire, be aroused by, and exhibit other sexually motivated behavior towards only those people of a particular sex. So I've capitalized sex because I'm talking about two different kinds of sex, which is really confusing. So that's, that's why that's there. The nature of a subject's sexual orientation in a particular case is type identified in virtue of two features. Firstly, the sex of the desiring subject, and secondly, the sex of the type of person typically desired by the subject. So heterosexual orientation is one which causes one to sexually desire, and so on, only people of the opposite sex to oneself. A homosexual orientation causes one to sexually desire, etc., only people of the same sex as oneself. And a bisexual orientation is one which causes one to sexually desire, etc., people of the opposite and same sex to oneself. So that's what I'm going to be defending against various challenges. Um, now, <coughs> the audience here is mixed, and I don't know if anyone's here because they just came to an Aristotelian society talk, and they always do. But so they might be surprised to think there's anything philosophically interesting about this at all. So just to give as neutrally as possible a one-minute introduction to some of the controversy around this at the moment. On the uh, left here, we've got a group called Get the L Out at London Pride last year, who had a sign saying, lesbian is female homosexual, um, and they were... Uh, roundly condemned for this action at London Pride, um, including by all the organisers and the police. On the, on the right, we have a group called L with a T, who have formed in um, response to Get the L Out. And they, their position is that trans women are or can be lesbians. Here's an article in Independent recently saying it's time to celebrate lesbian diversity by recognizing that trans women are lesbians. That's a kind of, you know, there's diversity under the lesbian umbrella. And if I can get this to work. Um, this is a quote from a, a member of Stonewall's advisory board, trans advisory board, Alex Drummond, a trans woman. It's a BuzzFeed article and she's asked, you identify as a lesbian, how do other women react to you? And she says, I've been in a long-term committed relationship for a long time, so I'm spoken for, but certainly I draw out the inner lesbian in women. So the idea is that when women flirt with her, she's drawing out their inner lesbian. So that is some of the context in which 
this becomes quite a this, the thing I want to defend becomes quite a controversial thing to defend. And certainly there are people that would wish that I did not say any of this. Oh yeah, and that was yesterday <laughs> at Bradford Pride, uh, where police came up to a group of people with lesbian, is femi a female homosexual on their t-shirts and asked them if they were a hate group. Okay, so back to the boring, uh, dry stuff. So I'm capitalizing sex, differentiating it from the activity of sex. And I'm going to consider four aspects to the orthodox account. Firstly, I'm going to talk about sexual orientation being a disposition. Secondly, talking about it as directed towards sex, with a capital S. Thirdly, talking about it as reflexive in a way that I'll explain in a minute. And finally, is trying to explain what makes it different from mere preferences, which is something that people assume an orientation must be. Okay, so I'm going to just lay on the table some presuppositions, um, which I won't defend. I'm going to assume that classification is not inherently normative. I'm going to assume that quite often classification has normative consequences or connotations, but those are contingent and are embedded in the mere act of classification. I'm also, yeah, so I'm assuming that normative connotations are detachable from classification in principle. Um, okay, I should add, it also, it does follow, it obviously follows from my position or any position on sexual orientation that it will follow from that position that some people count as gay, some people count as straight. Nothing I say, um, as far as I'm concerned, is making any value judgment on um, those positions or those uh, states. I'm interested in classification. And like I say, I don't take that to be essentially normative. Okay, so firstly, I'd like to think about sexual orientation in terms of a disposition. I think it fits well with the orthodox account to say that sexual orientation is a disposition. And I'm following other people in that, for instance, Edward Stein and Robin Dembroth. So disposition is roughly um, a capacity to uh, a capacity of a thing under certain conditions to manifest some behavior or property. Um, so let's call those outcomes the manifestations of the disposition. The famous dispositions philosophers talk a lot about are fragility, the capacity to produce the manifestation of breaking, and solubility, the capacity to um, manifest dissolving. Um, now, in order for a disposition to be activated, it has to encounter a stimulus. So something has to be struck in order to break or meet liquid in order to dissolve. Um, and I'm suggesting that we should think of sexual orientations as dispositions under the right circumstances in conjunction with the right stimulus to manifest desire um, sexual behaviour, arousal-based behaviours. Um, now, what's one of the advantages of, doing, of thinking of sexual orientation as a disposition is that you, the disposition is distinct from its manifestation, from its stimuluses, so you can have one that is effectively non-manifested. It can still be there. It just hasn't met the right conditions to be manifested. And that seems to fit really well with the way we talk about 
orientations, um, we're very familiar with the idea that someone's sexual orientation might not be manifest because of, perhaps, perhaps because they haven't encountered the right stimulus, maybe they haven't met the right person or people, maybe they're on a desert island, um, and also because perhaps the, the background conditions aren't right. So generally when we talk about dispositions being activated, it's in the context of some background conditions. And philosophers who talk about um, dispositions generally quite often talk about masking conditions. So um, there might be just the, back, the right background conditions might be absent, or there might be something present in the background conditions that interferes with the activation of the disposition. Um, again, if we're going to talk about fragility, the one example that's often talked about is that something fragile might be um, covered in packing material that stops it from breaking, even if it is struck. Now, the relevance of this is that we can think, I think, quite easily of lots of circumstances which would explain, lots of background conditions which would explain why someone's sexual orientation wasn't manifest or, um, yeah, just wasn't manifest. So, for instance, especially in a society which says that there's only one preferred kind of sexual activity, people with a different sexual orientation might feel guilty, they might feel peer pressure, <clears throat> they might want parental approval. You can think of all of those things as interfering masking conditions which stop their disposition from being manifested, as it would do if those conditions were absent. Um, another possible masking feature, I take it, is emotional attachment. Um, I'm assuming, following uh, sexologists, that, that we've got a romantic attachment system and we've got a sexual arousal system and they don't always, um, well, they're separate, but they can sort of interfere with each other in, in certain contexts. So you can be attached to someone who isn't exciting and you can be excited by someone you're not attached to, but when you are attached to someone, on it can cause you to be excited in a way that you wouldn't be if you weren't attached to them for some people. So um, these are all slides. Sorry, I'm getting here. Forgot about my slides. <laughs> okay, so thinking of a disposition as failing can either be explained in terms of the failure of the right stimulus conditions or the failure of the right background conditions. Um, and that's the masking stuff, <laughs> guilt, fantasizing, peer pressure, desire for approval, drugs, alcohol, romance, they can all be masking conditions. <coughs> I'm assuming that dispositions are causes, although I know that's controversial, or at least they're con causally relevant if that's a sort of re a retreat. Um, and I just want to point out that I don't think the disposition in question is obviously to sexually desire absolutely everyone of a given sex. It's to desire um, only those within a given sex um, subject to further preferences that you have for certain types of people. So I just wanted to make that clear. Um, in the print version of this, there's now a bit about the Kinsey scale of orientation and how I think thinking of sexual orientations <laughs> as dispositions can help us well, at least it's compatible with the Kinsey scale, despite superficially not being compatible with it, but I'm just not going to talk about that just now. So, bisexuality. It seems to me um, 
that we can analyse bisexuality as a compound uh, disposition. A person who is bisexual has a disposition to be aroused by people of the same sex and a further disposition to be uh, aroused by people of the opposite sex. Um, and I think that's part relatively parsimonious and therefore preferable to thinking that there's a third thing in the world. I mean, there is a third thing in the world in the sense there's a compound thing, but there's not a sort of third sui generis type thing. Um, and I think that's compatible with saying bisexuality is an orientation. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that bisexuality is not an orientation. I'm saying that the explanation of it is that somebody has two dispositions rather than one. It does follow from my view, and I meet this head-on, this consequence head-on, as it were, that asexuality is not an orientation, because I'm, I'm, I'm explaining an orientation as a disposition to manif manifest desire and arousal-based behaviours. And I take it the genuine asexuality, as opposed to a masked disposition, <laughs> um, is precisely not a disposition to manifest uh, arousal-based behaviours because you're asexual. That's no, there's no offence intended to anyone asexual, and it's perfectly compatible with it being politically important to recognise the phenomenon of asexuality and how it impacts on people's lives, but it just doesn't get classified as an orientation on this view. Okay. So that's the stuff about dispositions, and now we turn to the stuff about sex, biological sex. Okay. So I'm just going to get... Uh, an objection that I sometimes get um, out of the way. Does it follow from my view that a person has to have some really special technical knowledge of someone's sex or, or of what sex is in order to fancy them? Um, or do they have to have a technical knowledge of their physiology? No, it does not. <laughs> because I take it you can want things without knowing relatively technical specification things about them. I can want alcohol without knowing what the chemical composition of alcohol is. And I do. <laughs> I don't know what it is, I do want it. Um, so, I'm, in any case, um, I'm not understanding sex technically, or at least <laughs> as technically as I could be. So I, I'm an, uh, endorsing a cluster concept view of biological sex. I think Sex, male sex, female sex, each are appropriately characterised in terms of a cluster of non-essential features, endogenously produced, I think, um, but not, not, no one of them is essential. To the, no one of them is essential for being male or being female. Most of us have all of them. Uh, a few of us, or yeah, a few of us have only some of them. And a very, very, very few people are sort of difficult to classify in terms of their sex. But most inter what people that are called intersex are unambiguously male and female on this account. Um, it's a very, very small number that um, isn't easily classified, a small number of people. The, the large number of people called intersex have a thing called uh, late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is compatible with carrying a baby to term. So 
that's the that's like 1.5 percent of the 1.7 percent that is usually cited as the number of intersex people in the population. Okay, so just to clarify another feature of my view, um, well, this view, uh, the orthodox account, I think, should say that your orientation causes you to be attracted to people that you believe are of a particular sex, even where, unbeknownst to you, you might be wrong. So obviously, it's not an it doesn't give you an infallible ability to detect sex. And there's plenty of situations where you might find yourself attracted to someone who is, unbeknownst to you, not of the sex um, that you think they are. So I think that makes the content of sexual desire, um, it, gives it, an it gives it sex as an intentional object, de dicto rather than de re. Now, that sex is an intentional object of sexual desire is an empirical claim, I think. I think it seems well evidenced if you look at the history of diaries, novels, love letters, people talking about sex, people looking at pornography. I think it's an important part of what a lot of people are turned on by, that they're turned on by what they take to be sex bodies, endogenously produced sex bodies, not simulacra of sex bodies. I'm not saying, obviously this is a generalization and there are lots of exceptions too. <coughs> now, what about the cases where, and the, there are such cases, where a person of a given sex has um, been brought to look very like a member of the opposite sex. So consider this case, which is um, these sorts of cases do occur. Uh, John originally thought Jane was female, desired her as such, then discovers Jane is male. John's desire for Jane nonetheless persists. Doesn't that in fact show that the, there's something wrong with the orthodox account? Sexual desire doesn't take sex as an intentional object. Well, I think it doesn't automatically show that because there are other explanations compatible with the orthodox account um, that we could bring in here. One is, is masks, actually, like maybe John feels a lot of affection for Jane, or maybe there are other things about Jane that really turn him on. But we could also say, um, I think probably and probably, but depending on what, who else John might fancy, John might in fact be bisexual, even though he thinks he's heterosexual. Possibly more um, interestingly, I think, John's desire for Jane might be caused by his heterosexual orientation, but only derivatively. So he's got a general disposition to be attracted to female sex bodies, but in this case, he desires a body identical or very similar in appearance to a female sex body. That doesn't seem to me an unlikely scenario, particularly since sexual arousal is not directly controlled by conscious decisions. It seems to me it wouldn't be surprising if that were the case. Um, <coughs> But I don't think on its own terms that undermines the idea that most of the time John's sexual desire would pick out sex as an intentional object. So I suppose I'm not saying that all sexual desires have sex as an intentional object. I'm saying that the ones produced by an orientation um, do. Okay. Now, objection... Um, 
even given what I've said, is that sex, I'm wrong about the object of sexual desire because it's not sex, it's something called gender. And I, this would be a problem for my view. I mean, it's going to depend on how you cash out what gender is, and I'm going to go through three different um, possible meanings of gender in a minute, but um, it seems for most of these that two people of different sexes can share a gender and two people of the same sex can have different genders. So that would really, if it was true that our sexual desire was directed towards gender, not sex, that would really mess up the, the basic thought. Now, on extreme versions, um, sex just drops out altogether. It's assumed in some bodies of literature, mainly in gender studies, that the only possible intentional object of sexual desire is something called gender, not sex. On more, mod well, I think, more moderate versions, um, people say, well, sex is, a, is an object of sexual desire, and so is gender. So they're both um, non-competing intentional objects of sexual desire. But they're separate from each other, um, and they don't interact. So I'm going to have something to say about that more moderate version, because it will just follow from some things I'm about to say that I'm not sure they don't interact. But I'm really focusing on the idea that we've got a rival account here that says that gender is the object of sexual desire, not sex. Um, okay, so this is what I want to consider, and I'm going to go through three different readings of gender. The first reading is gender as masculinity or femininity, and this is understood as um, appearances, ways of dressing, um, behaving, thinking, that are stereotypically associated with one sex or another sex. So sometimes people say sexual desire is directed towards gender presentation or gender expression. So it's roughly the extent to which your body, your appearance, your clothing, your movement chimes with stereotypes about sex, social stereotypes about sex. Um, and on this positive view, you're attracted to masculinity or femininity. You're not attracted to to males or females. <laughs> um, now, I don't think this is a genuine uh, alternative to the orthodox account um, for the following reason. I think, so here's two pictures. One is Leonardo DiCaprio. One is Erica Linda as Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is, is male. Erica Linda is female. I think Leo looks feminine, <laughs> and I think Erica looks masculine, although they look very similar. So I think, in other words, we read masculinity and femininity against an understanding of sex. So what's masculine for a female can be feminine for a man, or neutral, depending on the case. What's feminine for a, a man can be masculine for a female. So if this example, if this, if this is the argument that's being proposed as some sort of alternative to the orthodox account, I don't think it works because it, um, I think we can still extrapolate an underlying orientation towards a particular sex or sexes, if you're bisexual, understood as a partial cause of your eventual choices and preferences. Um, I'm not saying that masculinity in this sense may not be an object of attraction. I'm just saying you can't detach it from sex as a cause of your choices. Okay. Now, here's another um, possible reading of gender. 
and I'm getting this from Talia May Betcher, as I understand it. It's the idea of a thoroughly socially constituted body. Um, there is no, on this sort of view, there is no distinction between something natural and something socially constituted. You can't get access to the natural. The body is just thoroughly socially constituted all the way down. There are no real facts about biology or sex bodies. There's just gender. So Talia Betcher says, natural sex, um, no, sorry, she rejects the view that natural sex exists independently of social interactions. She talks about naked presentation being just as socially constituted as clothing presentation. Um, so on this view, sexual desire is directed towards something thoroughly socially constructed because there's nothing else. Sorry about my poor game with the slides. Right, so um, I don't think this, I don't know if this is a sleight of hand, but I, I don't think that this is really a genuine rival to the orthodox account because um, if there's only if sex bodies just are socially constituted entities and that's all there ever was then we're still we still have sex as the intentional object of desire just sex differently theorized like we don't have a different object we've got the same object with a different theory of what that object is so on this view, I think, it can't, after all, be the case that two people of different sexes might share a gender because there is no distinction between sex and gender. So we can't get that sort of challenge that we originally thought we had to the orthodox account. There's no case where two people of the same sex might respectively possess different genders, I think. So what we used to think of archaically as sex was, in fact, always gender, never was anything else. So we haven't really disrupted the orthodox account, although we've got a different background theory of, of what the object is. Okay. The third uh, possibly relevant reading of gender is gender identity. And this is uh, one's feelings. I mean, there's different accounts of gender identity. Um, I'm sure people, some, some people will take an issue with this one, but seems to me it has some reference to the subjective, it's something inner, it's a set of feelings um, about, let's say, which set of social stereotypes one feels most at home with. <laughs> That's a tendentious reading. But anyway, it's definitely something subjective. Now, could that, could, you know, never mind about the detail of what gender identity is, the essential point is, for me, it's subjective. And we're supposed to take seriously the idea that it could be an object of sexual desire on an so on a massive scale, that what we're really attracted to is gender identity. Some, now it seems to me, conceivably, someone might have a sexual preference completely independent of any judgment about sex towards something imperceptible, non-sensuous, totally internal, that you have to ask somebody about before you know they have it. That's possible, but I don't think that's a good, good explanation of um, most of us. That's an empirical claim. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that's what I think. And th I do have some... Uh, empirical conf confirmation for this in um, this study. This is, a, this is like a popular culture uh, pricey of the findings of this study. But the study is, um, well, I'll give you the details of the study in a minute. So this, these researchers set out to ask about 1,000 people whether they would date um, trans people or not. And only 12% said they would. Now, that's n not relevant to me or what I'm saying here. 
But what they found, and they were surprised to find, is that, um, as you can see there, surprisingly amongst the people who were open to dating a trans person, almost half selected a trans person of a gender incongruent with their stated sexual orientation. So basically it turned out that quite a lot of the um, lesbians who said they would date a trans person would date a trans man. And it turned out that the straight woman, uh, I'm not sure about the straight woman, but it turns out that the straight men would date a trans man as well. Some of them anyway, a, a surprising number of them anyway, given the researchers thought that they would just be congruous if congruence between, well, if you're a lesbian, you would be attracted to trans women. And if you were a straight man, you would be attracted to trans women as well. And they didn't find what they thought they would find there. Now, the researchers put it down to um, femphobia and exclusion. But another explanation is that sexual desire it takes sex as the intentional object, for many people at least. So it's not surprising that lesbians end up attracted to trans men because they're attracted to females. Um, okay. So that concludes that part. Um, and now I want to talk about reflexivity. So another important feature of sexual orientation, uh, according to the orthodox account, is the fact that what that sexual orientations are type identified in terms of two elements. One is the sex of the person you fancy, and one is your sex. And um, your sex is a, is a relation, it, it generates the identity of your orientation. So um, heterosexual males and females both count as heterosexual despite desiring different sexes because they um, desire the opposite sex. And, Gay men and lesbians both count as homosexuals, despite desiring males and females, because they desire the same sex as them. So um, they have this reflexive relational structure. I'm saying that these orientations have a essential reference to um, a feature of the subject as well as a feature of the person desired. Uh, OK, so recently, <laughs> There's been a revisionary suggestion from Robin Dembroff and also in a manuscript by Raja Halwani that we should drop the reflexivity in analyzing sexual orientations. So two people should be classified as sharing a sexual orientation if and only if they're both attracted to the same type of person, but with no reference to the sort of person that they are. Um, Perhaps they might be both attracted to a certain kind of sex, or they might be attracted to a certain gender, or they might be attracted to a combination, and we should have several different orientations, all demarcated solely in terms of the kind of person to whom you're attracted, with no reference to anything about you. So, you know, quite obviously, um, that's a bit of a radical move away from the way that we do it now. So, here are some reasons offered by Dembroff and Hawani, not together, they um, each offer their own set of reasons. Hawani says that reflexive accounts of sexual orientation serve no explanatory or informational purpose. We can, like, we don't have anything, um, they don't do any, they're no use to us. 
and uh, so we can get rid of the reflexivity and do everything we wanted to do just simply by um, orientations which just are type identified in terms of the person to whom you're attracted. Dembroff, uh, I think both of them actually, but Dembroff has this idea that it's a more politically inclusive move to get rid of the reference to the subject because, so Dembroff is non-binary, so I'm going to use non-binary pronouns, so I'm going to say they. They, they um, think that there's this othering of marginalised sexualities by a focus, maintaining a focus on heterosexuality, homosexuality and bisexuality. Um, they would count as a marginal sexuality, for instance, a sexual orientation towards, only towards trans women, which doesn't get accommodated in this conceptual scheme. We can get rid of this marginalisation, which for them comes out of the act of classification itself, um, by rearranging the classification. So we get this qu quite, to my mind, startling sentence. The statistical divide between cis-heterosexuality and queer sexual orientations simply disappears because those categories disappear and their members are reorganised into new categories. So by engineering the categories, we can make, make, make things disappear. Now, obviously, there is a, a background, which I'm sure I would, you know, there's, there's, there's background differences in our approaches to these questions. But I would question the idea that just by simply <coughs> rearranging categories, we make things disappear. So it's part of my point really that there will still be a way of dividing up people into these orientations whether or not we retain the language to describe that thing and what I'm going to do in the rest of the talk really is try and generate motivate a story for saying we need those words we can have extra words we can other, have other words too in other categories but we shouldn't get rid of um, the categories as the orthodox account has it okay so I'm saying that no matter how we classify, or at least how some philosophers want us to classify, um, because I actually don't think the way that Dembroff and Helwani are suggesting things should go is sustainable. Um, no matter how we classify things, the reflexive patterns picked out by the orthodox account are real, and not mentioning them won't make them go away. It will remove our ability to usefully discuss them, and we do need to discuss them because sexual orientations understood as dispositions to opposite sex attraction or same sex attraction are a causal presence in a huge number of important discourses, investigative contexts, things that we care about as a society or we should care about. And now I'm going to go through a few of those. Oh, okay, but before I do, <laughs> I just want to fill in a bit of background that I don't think I did fill in sufficiently in the draft version of this talk, which is about um, where I'm coming from in terms of, I guess, metaphysics. I am very attracted by a kind of pluralist view that I find John Dupre um, and Philip Kitcher, he, he would say, confine it to biology, but... The idea is that classificatory schemes are partly responsive to the way things are and partly responsive to our collective interests in them. There's lots and lots of ways of dividing up the world into groups. And I think 
Dupre has the example of everything under 10 kilograms. You know, we don't actually bother to divide things in the world up into everything under 10 kilograms and everything over 10 kilograms because we have absolutely no interest in that as a classification. But of course, there are facts about which things fall into which of those groups. Um, we do develop uh, concepts over time that respond to our interests in different domains. Um, because he's a pluralist, he thinks that uh, there's no sort of privileged set of ways of describing objects. Um, some objects can be cross-classified according to different classificatory schemes and different interests, but he's also a realist. And so that's the sort of um, background, I think, fit that this paper sits quite well in. Realism, or at least the reality of objects, is indicated by the success of the theoretical posits which refer to them in causal explanation. Uh, so here's Kitcher on biological kinds. Pluralistic realism rests on the idea that our objective interests may be diverse, that we may be obje objectively correct in pursuing inquiries which demand different forms of explanation, so that the patterning of nature generated in different areas may cross-classify the constituents of nature. So I'm just adding that in in case it helps with what's to follow. Um, but I'm trying to defend the idea that a classificatory scheme which picks out sex-based dispositions, reflexive ones, serves a large number of explanatory interests really well. For instance, uh, biology. I think opposite sex attraction, so I'm going to say it in that way to spell out the fact that it's reflexive, is an ev evolutionary adaptive behaviour. Um, the dependent, the non-assisted reproduction at the moment, the continuation of the species depends on it. And that fact alone is going to generate an enormous amount of interest in opposite sex um, attraction from a political stance, not all of it good, but you know, from a political stance, an economic stance, a medical stance, psychological stance, a legal stance, there's really huge amounts that just come out. That mere fact alone that reproduction is, um, non-assisted reproduction is generated through opposite sex attraction, or at least um, sexual behavior. Uh, but there's also interest in same-sex attraction from a biological perspective. There's, a, there's lots and lots of different uh, in, ways in which that gets investigative, investigated. There's some thought that there's an indirect adaptive benefit to same-sex attraction from some researchers. And there's a perpetual interest in trying to establish whether same-sex attraction has a genetic or other biological basis. Relatedly, I mean obviously relatedly, medically, um, there are diseases that affect opposite sex attracted people more than same-sex attracted people. There are reproductive issues um, that tend to affect uh, same sex, uh, opposite sex attracted people more, although obviously if reproduction is assisted then they can affect same-sex attracted ones. And if you include, as I think you should, psychosocial medicine into medicine, then you incorporate enormous amount to, um, of uh, material that's generated out of living in a heteronormative society. So some psychological disorders disproportionately affect same-sex attracted people rather than opposite attracted people in a heteronormative society where 
they're brought up to think that they are somehow deficient. Uh, in psychology, there's a lot of interest in de developmental conditions for opposite sex attraction versus same sex attraction. There's interest, academic interest in the idea of conversion therapy from both perspectives, those people who think it's a good idea and people who think it's a bad idea. There's philosophical interest in its ethical implications. In law, given, I mean, this is, this is contingent, it doesn't have to be this way, but obviously, as I write, same-sex attracted sexual behaviour is criminalised in over 70 countries, including several where it's punishable by death. Um, the legal right to marry is very um, randomly scattered across legal systems for same-sex attracted people. Uh, the promotion of same-sex attraction is illegal in some education systems and is very disputed in ours. Fertility treatments are sometimes legally denied to same-sex attracted people. So anyway, you get the point. I'm just spelling out a little bit of what I take to be the interesting causal consequences of classifying people up into these two or three groups uh, uh, in the society in which we live. <coughs> and relatedly, um, I, in sociology and politics, there's an awful lot to say there too. So homophobia, I take it, is a form of disgust, not just at people who are attracted to males or, or men or people who are attracted to females. Homophobia is a form of disgust generated, uh, directed towards uh, people who are attracted to the same sex as them. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing that gets the phobia going. It's disgusting, supposedly. <laughs> for you to be attracted to someone of the same sex as you as opposed to someone of the opposite sex of you. So if we, we, if we don't have these concepts, we can't discuss that. I don't think the phobia will go away if we remove the concepts to, to refer to these different kinds of attraction. I say that the demographics of sex slavery and trafficking are almost entirely shaped by the transactions of opposite, opposite sex attracted males. Um, rape of females is mostly carried out by opposite sex attracted males. So there's just lots of different issues that we want to be able to talk about. There's also economics and business. There's different revenue streams in the porn industry for homosexuals versus heterosexuals and males and females as well. Um, there's a market for surrogacy amongst opposite sex attracted females in poorer countries catering for same sex attracted males in richer ones and so on. Okay, so... That was my attempt to motivate the idea that we need these concepts and they do, they have causal explanatory power. I think we can get waylaid in this discussion by the idea that homosexuality is a social construct that only was invented in the 19th century, and that's something that people say quite often. But I interpret that claim, which comes from Foucault and David Halperin and lots of others, as a claim about a much thicker social construct than just the kind of thin one that the orthodox account gives us, which is just about sexually aroused behaviours in relation to someone of the same or opposite sex to oneself. Um, this is the idea of the homosexual as a way of life, as a kind of aesthetic, as a um, kind of much thicker social kind. And in fact, I think the orthodox account allows us to identify what's constant between different kind of social constructions around homosexuality, like the catamite, the molly, the uranian, the queer, they're all different sort of local 
um, thick constructions around the fact that's a constant, which is that of same-sex attraction in the way that the orthodox account picks out. Okay, how am I doing for time? Five minutes, right. So the final bit of this is about what makes sexual orientation different from mere preferences. Um, now, these days, if you read uh, sexology journals, you will find lots of different behaviours being called orientations. Um, Paedophilia is called an orientation. Bestiality is called an orientation. Polyamory is called an orientation. These are all articles which argue for this. So this presents the orthodox account of the challenge, like there are lots of different patterns of sexual interest, There's, and these are all of social importance too. Like it's important that we have concepts to refer to them. But why don't they count as orientations too, or what makes homosexuality, heterosexuality, and bisexuality so special? Here are some failed explanations of the difference. It can't be stability, because preferences can be stable too. I think um, the dispositions I'm talking about are stable, but some preferences are very stable too. Fetishes, very stable. Um, it can't be early onset, because quite often sexual pref other sexual preferences, like fetishes, might come on quite early too. It can't be being unchosen or immune to deliberate change, because I take that to true some sexual preferences as well. It can't be being endogenous because we just don't know enough to know whether it is, and some preferences might be endogenous too, so I definitely wouldn't want to make that the, the difference. And it's not that sexual orientations are personally important to their possessors, not in the way that I've characterised them. Lots of people don't care about their sexual orientation. They think it's like the least interesting thing about them, including, you know... All, all members of all three. And sometimes it's suggested that sexual orientations are particularly organising. Like, first, if you're a heterosexual male, first you identify the females, then you zero in on the attractive ones to you. But I, I... So it'd be like, you know, I fancy a redhead only if she's female, rather than I fancy a female only if she's redhead. But I don't think that can be right either, because I take it that if you've got a very, 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 very strong preference for redheads, then it might be just as equally important to you to fancy that, that you're with a female as with a redhead. So I take it that that's really an indication of the relative strength of our, most of our preferences. But it's not going to organise um, in that way. Okay, so here's my explanation, which is possibly quite anticlimactic. Climactic. I think calling the dispositions I've been talking about orientations is just a way of showing that they're really, really important <laughs> preferences. Um, because of all the stuff I just talked about, all of the different discourses in which they have causal implications. That's not, as I say, that's not really that surprising given the connection of reproduction to uh, heterosexuality. Uh, that has generated all sorts of things, evolutionary, biologically, politically, and so, it's not surprising it's this way. I'm saying sexual orientations have the largest range of interesting causal consequences out of all the sexual preferences, partly due to their widespread incidence. Most people have one, so they're of the most interest to us. They're likely to remain so. We continue to need concepts to refer to them. I'm not saying 
that we shouldn't develop concepts to cover other sexual preferences. We should, and they will have their own interest to particular groups, or perhaps all of us. We need to maintain adequate concepts for them too, but that's not, there's no sense in which we need to replace the classificatory scheme we have, scheme we have because it does really good work. So, contemporary political and historical challenges to the idea of a sex-based sexual orientation have provided a welcome opportunity to clarify their role, and I'm arguing it's an eliminable role in many theoretical and practical discourses. Talk of the demise of these concepts has been overstated. If we got rid of these concepts, we would have to reinvent them. That's it. <laughs>